Thanks for coming. It's great to see you. We're going to have a great time tonight. We have the Lord's Supper, which is going to be so fun. And, of course, uh, Genesis 46, the book of Genesis is so powerful. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis 46. We're continuing, of course, our study, and, and we're in the life of Joseph. If you remember that the book of Genesis has four great people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and that's what we're seeing. Uh, it's going to be a happy time because 22 years have passed, and the family is going to be united. Jacob and his sons and their family will come to Egypt to join Joseph and his family, and we call that what a reunion. We can see the nation of Israel they leave the promised land and come to Egypt. Now, here, here's, I put this up and I just wanted to raise this question. Is it okay? Because this is the, this is the question that we have. It, this seems great, but is it okay for Jacob to leave the promised land and go to Egypt? Is it okay? Because in the past, it's been wrong. Abraham was not to leave the land of Canaan. He went down to Egypt and he got into trouble there. He lied a couple of times, got himself in trouble. Not only did he lose his testimony, but he picked up Hagar, which was a handmaiden and, and brought trouble into all their lives. We also saw that Isaac, which was Jacob's father, was forbidden by God to go to Egypt. Now, is it okay to leave the promised land and go to Egypt? How is Jacob going to know if it's okay? And we're going to see in this passage this evening, we're going to deal with some key issues, and that is this. How do we know? How do we know God's will? How do we know what to do? How do we know right from wrong? Where's our authority? Where do we find it? How do we know all these things? Well, we're going to see, as we study that, we're going to see the great family reunion, as we call it. And it makes us think about, makes us think about the day and when all of the believers are going to be able to be, now those of us who know Christ will be taken off the earth, the dead in Christ rise first, we who are alive and remain to be caught up together, and we're going to have a great reunion there. I think that'll be fantastic. Well, here's a question. Are there certain things right and certain things wrong? Of course, I know. We'd all say, of course there are certain things right and certain wrongs. Well, where, where do we go to make these decisions? What's our authority? Well, is our right and wrong based on what each one of us considers as right and wrong? You know, George Barna, and you know, I'm not a fan of George Barna much anymore. George Barna started out by being a guy giving a bunch of statistics and did a great job. And then George Barna became opposed to the church. He's not for the church anymore. He, in fact, he doesn't think people ought to meet together like we're doing. He says he doesn't see that biblically. And I say, well, okay, thank you, George. But anyway, uh, he's got some statistics, I think, which are fine. And he did a, a survey on some questions. And it was a telephone survey. They, they actually talked to thousands of people. And they found out this. They said that most people believe that there is no absolute truth, that different people can define truth in different ways. In fact, some people could say this is truth and this is truth, and we know they'd be conflicting, but both could still be okay, be correct. So summary is that each one determines what he or she thinks is right or wrong. In the survey, George Barna found out that over 80% of Americans believe in God and a large percentage of that claim to be Christians. The problem is this. Of those who said they were Christians, 53% said there is no absolute truth, which means that 53% of the people in the United States who say they're Christians don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God because they'd say, it's well, it's a good book, and it's got, but it's got errors in it. It's not absolute truth. Well, there is a standard. Where do we go for right and wrong? A survey in Leadership Magazine came out that the percentage of people who make their moral judgments based on the Bible, uh, to Christians, it's 16%. Where the percentage of people who base their decisions on personal experience, 45%. We live in a society that says whatever is right for you is right for you, but what is right for me is right for me. They may not be the same thing. I remember reading this, and this is a little bit old. But you remember when Pinocchio was re-released, it came out, 
And I, I read a write-up because the, the reviewer described it this way. He says, Pinocchio enforces the finger-wagging behavioral code of the 1940s. Good boys don't tell lies. Good boys go to school. Good boys resist temptation. The reviewer then stated that the movie is filled with 1940 prejudices. Now realize that honesty, dependability, and self-control were once called virtues, but this reviewer calls them prejudices. What in our society is the source of authority? Where do people go to find right from wrong? Well, you've heard me say many times, I'm so thankful for a church that believes that you go to the Word of God for right and wrong. And that's the authority. And that's what we talked about this morning. It just so happens that the passage this morning in Second Timothy talked about preaching the Word. And, and we go back to the Bible. The Bible is our source for right and wrong and where we go and what we do. God has revealed Himself in a written revelation. You know, you can never go long, wrong as long as you go to the Scripture. You, won't, you, can't, you can't make a mistake as long as you go back to the Scripture and say, this is what the Word of God says. <clears throat> well, this evening we're going to see that Jacob is going to have to make a decision because he's told by, by his family that Joseph is alive and we're supposed to go down to Egypt and Pharaoh has told us to come to Egypt and everything's going to be good when we get to Egypt because we don't have any food here. And Joseph's in a big position down there and so when we get there we'll be taken care of. And we're supposed to go down there and be united. And is that right to go? What are we supposed to do? Joseph had already told his family that, that he forgives them. In fact, if you remember in Genesis 45, verse 5, he said, You sold me, but God sent me. In 45, verse 8, he said, It was not you who did it, but God. He even told his brothers that even though they meant it for evil and they were trying to do this and they put him into slavery, that God was superseding the whole thing and made sure he got down there to save their lives. Last time, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, you go get your family, go get your father. And I'm, giving, I'm sending wagons and everything. You'll get down there, get all the people on the wagons, and they come back. And you can move to Egypt, and I'll even let you live in the best land of Egypt. The brothers returned to Jacob. And he thought Joseph, of course, had been dead all these years. And they said, and I'm not sure how they said it. They said, uh, we got a surprise. Joseph is still uh, Joseph's alive, and not only is he alive, he's number two on the list. In Egypt, he controls everything, and he's alive. And, and you remember that in chapter 45, verse basically 26, it said, They told him, saying, Joseph's still alive, and indeed he's rule over all the land of Egypt. But he, Jacob, was stunned. He didn't believe them. He said, that's, that's not possible. It's just not possible. And they talked to him, and they showed him everything, and he saw the wagons, and he said everything. And so he ended, we ended the chapter last time. He said, Then Israel said, It's enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. We're going to find that that um, Jacob is about 130 years old at this time. And how much longer do you think he's going to live? I mean, you know, 130, you're, going to, you're getting on up there pretty good. Well, he's going, to live, he's going to live to be 147. So he's going to have 17 years in Egypt with his, with his family. So it's pretty amazing. This evening, Jacob goes to Egypt. The question, is it okay? Is it okay? Let me break down the passage for you. First of all, God instructs Jacob. That's 46 verses 1 through 7. We see God comes to Jacob with information. Then we see in verses 8 through 27 the listing of the families. We'll go through that fairly quickly. That's the listing of the sons. There's just a couple of things I want to highlight as we go through that. And then the reunion. Joseph meets Jacob after all these years. 22 years have passed, basically. And we're going to see the reunion. So it's really powerful. Let's look at uh, as Jacob gets ready to leave Canaan to go down to Egypt. Let's put it this way. He gets ready to leave the promised land. 
if you remember back when I said that there was a reason that God actually wanted to take his people, his family. Because remember, we keep saying the nation of Israel, but there's only 70 of them. It's, it's really like a big family is what we got. God wants to take the big family of Israel and remove them from the promised land. And we'd say, well, wait a minute. God gave them the promised land. He promised it to Abraham and he promised to Isaac. He's promised to Jacob. Why should he take them out? And we said there were two reasons. One is because of the famine, he's going to take them down to Egypt so they'll survive. If not, they might all die and then there wouldn't be any way to have a savior. But the second thing, as we said, as long as they were living in the land of Canaan, which is the promised land, they are being influenced by the pagan culture. We saw what happened to Judah. We saw what happened to one of the other brothers. It's getting worse. If they stay there, they may all be pagan looking. You know, I mean, this is what's going to happen. So he says, I'm going to remove my people from there. And then when the iniquity of the Amorites is full, I will bring my people back to remove those people from this land. And so it's really powerful. Let's see what happens. Chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel set out with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Now he leaves, and of course, notice how the verse calls it Israel, because it's, it's highlighting the fact that this is, this is you see, Jacob's name means deceiver. And then God changed his name from Jacob to Israel, which means prince of God. And so that's the idea. And when you hear the name Israel, you think more of the people group and the land and the seed and the blessing. And so he highlights it here. Uh, Moses does when he writes this. So Israel set out with all that he had. And he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Now, he, he sits out and he comes to Beersheba. If, you, if you've ever looked at the land of Israel, there's an old saying. They'll say, from Dan to Beersheba. Dan was considered the northernmost point in Israel. Beersheba was considered the southernmost point in Israel. And so if you said Dan to Beersheba, you'd say from the north to the south. And so they're leaving and they're going south, going to Egypt, and they come to the last part of the land. What they'd say is the, the last city in the land. And they come to Beersheba. Now notice what he does. When he comes to Beersheba, he offers sacrifices to God, to, to the God of his father Isaac. Now this is a place where his father Isaac had worshipped God and where God had revealed himself to Isaac. There is a memorial there. He stops here to do something. He stops here to worship God. I mean, this is great. He offers sacrifices. That's what he does when he offers sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. There's a memorial here. And Abraham and Isaac had also worshipped here in the past. The Old Testament. Now, by the way, there's a memorial here. The Old Testament is full of memorials so that they could remember what God had done for them. Think about it. The tabernacle, the altar, the feast days, all those things were memorials what God had done. Well, we have a memorial. We talked about it. We have a memorial tonight given to us by Jesus Christ. It's the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate a memorial tonight. We're going to remember what Jesus did, how his body was bruised and crushed for us, and how his blood was shed for us so that he could give us eternal life by faith. And so we'll think about that. And that's why Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, and we'll celebrate that a little bit later on. So as we continue, let me think, let's raise the question again. Is it okay for Jacob to leave the promised land? Because God told Abraham, this is your land. Isaac, this is your land. Jacob, this is your land. When Abraham left, God told him not to leave. He went down there. When he got down there, he got himself in trouble. And Isaac was supposed to leave. And now here's Jacob. Is it okay for Jacob to leave the promised land? Most of the time, Egypt is a picture of the world. To go to Egypt is to go to the false religion, to the worships of the world. Should Jacob leave? Well, Joseph and Pharaoh are telling him to come. I mean, it sounds okay. He wants to do what is right. We find at Beersheba, there may be more to it than just the fact that he stops to worship God. It may be that Jacob is stopping and saying, what do I do? Do I go? 
What do I do? Look at verse 2. God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night. Now, you know, sometimes we read the Bible and we think God came to Jacob. How did he come to him? Sort of a dream, wasn't it? It's a vision of the night. A vision and a dream are a little bit two different things. Sometimes the Bible will say he spoke to somebody in a, vi- in a dream. Sometimes it says he spoke to somebody in a vision. In the nighttime, when Jacob was not asleep, because that would be a dream, somehow in a vision God appears to him in the night. And he said, Jacob, Jacob. Gives his name twice, making sure he's awake, making sure it's him. Jacob, Jacob. He said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Notice what he's saying. Don't be afraid to go. Why? For I will make you a great nation there. We've called them the nation of Israel all this time, but they're not a nation. There's only 70 people. Most of us would say that 70 people is probably not a nation, right? But he says, when you get down there, I'm going to make you a great nation. How's he going to do it? He's going to put them into slavery. And they're going to multiply all over the place. And the Pharaoh who raises up who doesn't know Joseph is going to be afraid of them because they're populating so much. He makes them slaves. And they're slaves for 400 years before they come out. And when they come out, they come out with 2 million people. It's just amazing. He said, don't be afraid. You know what? When, When the Bible says, don't be afraid, what does that mean? The person had been what? Afraid. You remember when the angels appeared and they said, do not be afraid? Why? Because they were afraid. What was Jacob afraid of? What do you think he was afraid of? Leaving, going to Egypt. He says, I'm not sure I'm supposed to go. And God says, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. For I will make you a great nation there. He's going to be a great nation. I will make you a great nation. Seventy people become two million people. You remember the promise that God gave to Jacob? The land, first of all, he gave it to Abraham, to Isaac, and Isaac to Jacob. There it is, the land, which is the land of Canaan, the seed, which is the nation, the Messiah, the blessing, salvation to the the world, through the Jews, and through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's the promise to the Jewish people. Thank the Lord for the Jewish people. Without the Jewish people, we have no salvation, because through the Jewish people comes the Messiah and the Savior. That's what we have. People always say, I don't like Jews. You don't like Jews? My Savior's Jewish. I love Jewish people. I love Jews. I love that God chose a people group to send a Savior. He gave them a land. He gave them a seed. He gave them the blessing. Notice what he says in verse 4. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. Do you know what that means? What does it mean? That when he dies, who's going to be the one over him that when he dies to close his eyes? Joseph, his son, is going to be there when he dies. <clears throat> if you're Jacob, you might say, about how much longer do you think I got? You know, <laughs> right? When you, uh, he's going to close my eyes. So, But here's the amazing thing. I will take you down and I will what? Bring you back. Where does he die? Where does he die? In Egypt. How does he get back? They bring him back. They bring him back and bury him. They ask Pharaoh, is it okay? My daddy doesn't want to be buried here. My daddy likes to be buried there. Pharaoh says, go ahead. They go back. All the Egyptians are there. They, they, a whole caravan of Egyptians go back to bury him. And the people in the land look over there and they say, boy, there's a bunch of sad Egyptians over there. They don't realize it's actually burying the Jewish man, Jacob, the father of the nation. 
Amazing stuff. So he says, you go down, I'll be with you. Isn't it great to know that God is with us? And by the way, God is always with us. Hebrews says, he'll never leave us or forsake us. What shall we fear? I will bring you up again. Going to the nation of Egypt is temporary. It's not permanent. Their land that God gave them was not Egypt. The land that God gave them is the land of Canaan. He says, Jacob, Joseph will close your eyes. He'll be there when you die. All this comes true. Jacob goes to Egypt. Joseph brings the body back to Canaan, buries him in the cave of Machpelah. Same place that Abraham's buried. Same place. Now, how did Jacob know that it was okay to go? God told him. God's word. And now this time there's no written revelation. So he can't open the scripture to determine right from wrong. He has to get God's word. And do you realize this is the eighth time in Genesis that God has appeared to Jacob? The eighth time. The question for us is how do we know what's right and wrong? How do we know whether we do something or not? Well, we go back to God's word. We have the written revelation. We have God's word that tells us right from wrong. How do we know right from wrong? God's word. How do we know to worship or pray? How do we know about the end time events? How do we know what the salvation message is? How do we know what the role of the husband or the wife is or the parent or the child? How do we know how to treat one another? We go back to the word of God. Where are we going if we're going to make decisions? Where do we go to make decisions? We go back to the word of God. Is it, is it what our friends say are right and wrong? Is it what our society says right or wrong? Or is it what the Word of God says? We always go back there. Romans 12, 2, he says, Stop being conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, you can be shaped by the world. In fact, you've heard me say it many times. If you're not consciously being transformed by the Word of God, you will be unconsciously conformed to the world. It's just going to happen to you. It's going to happen to you over and over. If we're not on purpose deciding, I'm going to put this in my mind. I'm going to know it. I'm going to apply it. I'm going to live it out. I'm going to memorize it. I'm going to meditate on it. If we do not consciously do that, unconsciously the world will shape you. By knowing the Word, we will know the will of God. We can never go wrong. Now, what about how do we make decisions then? Well, two things I just wanted you to see. One, whenever the Bible talks about if you have a decision to make and the Word of God deals with it, the commands and the principles, you obey it. Whenever the Word of God does not give you information, if there's no revelation concerning the decision you make, you have the freedom to make any choice you want to make. I know that's a little bit different than sometimes people teach, but I want you to understand that if the Scripture does not give you written revelation on a decision to make, like where to live and who to marry and what job to take and all those things, you don't have written revelation on that. You have freedom to make wise choices. We'll talk more about that. That's, that's another whole message. Anyway, we did a whole study on that in study school, and I've done college retreats on it, so you can go online and get it if you want to on knowing God's will. It always goes back to the Word of God. Well, how did Jacob know what to do? God came to him and told him what to do. He said, it's okay to go. Go on down there. In fact, go down there. I'll be with you. You'll die down there, and I'll bring you back. So look what happened, verse 5. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they're doing just what they're supposed to do. They're going back in the wagons and everything. And he goes on to say they took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him. Do you know that the Canaanites who had been with them for all these years, you know what the Canaanites say when they left? Boy, I'm glad they left. I thought they'd never leave. Right? Because they've had conflict with them a whole time. And when they come back 400 years later, they're coming back to take over this land. The Jewish people are going to come back, and that's where Joshua comes in. They take Jericho, and after they take Jericho, they go up and fight Ai and those other places. They get the central part, they go to the north, and then they go to the south. They conquer the whole land when they come back the next time. It's going to be a long time from now. It's going to be 400 years. And we'll see what happens. Well, notice it says, 
Verse 6, they took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan. They came to Egypt, Jacob, the mother's descendants with him, and his sons and his grandsons with him, and his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. The entire, what we'd call, nation of Israel, the family of Jacob, the descendants of Israel, have now gone to Egypt. We'd say, well, what about the promised land? Who's in the promised land? The Canaanites are in the promised land. The Canaanites, and there, there are seven or eight different people groups living in that land. The Hittites and the Zebusites and the Ziphites and all those different things, they're all there. One of these days when he calls it the iniquity of the Amorites, he calls all of them Amorites. God says when their iniquity is full, I'm going to judge them. I'm going to judge them by bringing my people back and removing them from the land. So it's powerful. Look what he goes on to say in verse 8. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his sons, who went to Egypt. So he just says, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to list to you the people who went down there. The Bible's so amazing, isn't it? I mean, he's going to list all these people. He's going to give us how many there were. And so we won't do all, go through every little name, but he starts, first of all, with Reuben. Now, let me remind you of something. That Jacob had two wives, right? Who are they? Rachel and Leah. Now, he got, married, got Leah first, right? He, he wanted Rachel he thought, I'll marry Rachel. He worked seven years for Rachel. And then the night of the wedding, he wakes up and it's Leah. And he goes, I don't think this is what I had planned for. And so he goes back to Laban and says, I think you tricked me. And he says, uh, okay, you work seven more years, you get this wife, and I'll let you have her now. And so they get her. And then they had two handmaidens for each of these women. And so there are really four women there. And when, when Jacob starts having relationships with both Leah and Rachel, Leah starts having babies. Rachel's not having babies, so she says, take my handmaid and have some babies. So he goes into this person, and she says, well, you better take my handmaid and have some babies. And pretty soon, all he's having babies with all four of these women. And we're going to see that the listing of the children that were through the four women. So let's look at it. Here's first. He's going to list them all. He starts with his firstborn, and that's Reuben. So the, here's Reuben, and then I've got, I put the names for you like this. There's Reuben, and then he lists the, the sons of Reuben. And we're not going to go over those, but there's like Hanok and Palu and Hezron and Carmi. And then he says, here's the, the sons of Simeon. And he lists Jemuel and Jamin and Ohad, and he starts listing those names. Then he lists the sons of Levi. And there's Gershon and Kohath and Miri. And then he gives the son of Judah, the sons of Judah. And the Judah sons are a little bit famous because Ur and Ohad. Onan, and Shelah, and Perez, and Zerah, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. Do you remember anything about Ur and Onan, what it says about them? Why'd they die? Because they were what? They were wicked, remember? We said, we don't want to know, we don't want to know about what they did, but whatever they did, God, God, it says God put them to death. So we'll just kind of skip over that part. Let's go on. Then there's the sons of Ishakar, and he lists Tola and those guys, and then the sons of Zebulun, and he lists them. And then he says, okay, now these are the sons of Leah. That was the six sons. I'm sorry. Yeah, go back if you would. Go back. That's the, the sons of Leah. And then she bore to Jacob in Pandanaram with his daughter Dinah, all the sons and the daughters. There were 30. Go ahead. There's 33 people through Leah. Now, he's going to go on and go says, now the sons of Gad, there's Gad, and he lists them, and then the sons of Asher, I think I've got them right there, lists them. Now, who are, they, who are these? Well, verse 18, these are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah. That's the handmaiden. So Leah had a handmaiden named Zilpah, and so he had, he had some sons and daughters through Leah, and, but he also had some children and some offsprings through Zilpah, and that total there was 16. So he lists them for us. 
Then he says, oh, let's go on now. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel. Now, she's the famous one that we all know. And everybody says, oh, he's the one. That's the one she lo- he loved and everything. And they had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. There they are. Then he goes ahead and said, now, Joseph... Now, to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, who Anasseh, the daughter of Poparia, the priest of On, bore to him. So he, he bore two sons in the land. That's going to be four people there, the, the husband, Joseph and his wife and the two kids. Then he says, the sons of Benjamin. And he lists them. Boy, they were, they were a good number. Bela and Becher and Ashbel and Gira and those guys. They list them. Then he comes back. Now, here are the sons of Rachel that were born to Jacob. And there were 14. Now, she had a handmaid. And here they are, the sons of Dan. They list them, and the sons of Naphtali list them, and these are the sons of Bilhah. That was the handmaid whom Laban gave to his daughter, Rachel, and she bore these to Jacob. There were seven in all. And so you got seven there. Now, if you add that total up, you're going to have 70 people. So notice it says, all persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the ones of Jacob's sons, were 66. 66 who were coming, there were already four there, and it gives you 70 total. And so it says, the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two, and all the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. So there's 70 people that come. And so you think, here's this, here's this land, and there's 70, here's this, this people group, and there's only 70 of them. Think about it. Abraham, in the family of Abraham, you say, well, Abraham, there was, at one time we said that Abraham had 316 soldiers that fought in his household. He had a big household, but how many of them were his actual family? Not very many. Remember, he had Isaac and Ishmael. And then Isaac had Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob had the twelve, which we just saw listed there, which ends up being about 70 people. So when you get ready to go into the land, go into Egypt, there's 70 people. Now here comes the part which is, I think, my favorite part of this passage, and that's the reunion. And can you imagine being Jacob and that you thought Joseph had, had been killed 22 years ago? And then your sons come back to you and say, he's alive. And you just, you, you, you go, I, I don't believe it. And then you say, okay, I do believe it, let's go. And they're waiting to see him. Look, look at verse 28. Now, he sent Judah before him to Joseph. Now, that's Jacob sent Judah out before him to point out the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Now, they didn't know exactly which way to go, but Judah did. And most some of the brothers did because they had been there two or three different times. And so Judah goes ahead of the way to show them how to get to Goshen, which is, I think, the northern part of Egypt. And it's supposed to be the best part. That's what we hear. Now watch this. Maybe they're, uh, we're going to see the reunion. And possibly Joseph had, had sent some people out. And he said, you go out. And when you see them coming, you, and it's my family, you come get me. Because I want to be there when they get here. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. Oh, I love this. And as soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck. And he wept on his neck a long time. This is the reunion. Then seen each other 22 years. Do you remember the last time he saw his dad? His daddy said, son, take this good-looking coat I got you. And what I want you to do is I want you to go find your brothers. And I want you to check on them and see what they're doing. Because what did Joseph normally do? Told on his brothers. Every time they weren't doing right, he'd go back, daddy, they're not doing right. They're not. And, you know, they didn't like him. And he was the favored son and everything. And so his dad says, son, I want you to go down and, and I'll see you at supper time. Go down there and come back. Never came back. Never came back. 
And when they came back, they said, is this your son's coat? Remember what they did? They sold him into slavery to the Ishmaelites, the Midianites, going down to Egypt. They took that coat and they killed an animal and put blood all over it. And they brought it back and they said, is this your son's coat? And they didn't have CSI and everything to figure out that that wasn't human being. You know, they, Jacob didn't go, hmm, hmm, I don't think that's human blood. Mm-mm. Uh, he just said, my son must be eaten up by an animal. And now for 22 years, he's waited. And now they're together. And it says... They wept. They wept a long time. Israel said to Joseph, Let me die, since I've seen your face, that you're alive. There's going to be a time for all of us, of loved ones that are gone, that we're going to be united again. Mamas and daddies, sons and daughters, families and friends, that we're not together right now. And there's going to come a time when we're going to be going, there you are. You're looking good. You're looking good. That's why it's going to be a great day. When the trumpet blows, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the air to meet the Lord. It's going to be in the air. You're going to see your loved ones in the air. It's going to be the greatest day of our lives. And we're going to be really happy. Next time, Jacob is going to see the Pharaoh. It's so funny. Because Pharaoh's the, he's, he's the top man in the world, right? Jacob comes up and blesses him. Hey, I'd like to bless you. Thank you, Lord, for this man. You know, I mean, good gracious. Jacob looks down at I mean, the Pharaoh looks down at him and says, How old are you? How old are you anyway? And he tells him, I'm pretty old. He says, I've had pretty a tough life. Had Jacob had a tough life? Most of the tough things in Jacob's life are his own doing, right? God has always blessed him. Well, what have we seen? We've seen God tells Jacob to go, and Jacob follows the word of God. He goes down to Egypt, and we see the listing of the families, and then we see the reunion after 22 years. Let me give you some applications, and then we'll celebrate the memorial that we have that we can remember what our Savior has done. Uh, let's, number one, first application, base our lives on the word of God. What is the basis of our authority? It's the Scripture. It's the, the authority is the absolute Written Word of God. You can never go wrong when we go to the Scripture. Billy Graham said this, We've lost sight of the fact that some things are always right and some things are always wrong. We've lost our reference point. We no longer have a moral philosophy to undergird our way of life because we don't go to the Scripture anymore. The Word of God, listen, some people, it's either the Word of God or it's the world. M.R. DeHaan, Dr. DeHaan, who started Radio Bible Class, he said this, We are either leaving our mark on the world or the world is leaving its mark on us. And it's true. You're either being conformed to the world or you're being transformed. You're either touching the world and changing lives or either the world is changing you. So, what should we do? Well, one of the things we want to do is we want to live in such a way that the world knows who we are, that we're different. Now, listen. Throughout history, Christians say, here's how we're different. We don't dance. We don't go to movies. We don't do this. We don't do this. We don't do this. We don't do this. And the whole world knows everything we're against. They need to know what we're for. We need to stand for Jesus Christ. We need to stand for godliness and, and, and the greatest message of all. Because he said, I want you to go out and give good news, not rules. Good news. You have the message of salvation. You have a message that takes a person from hell to heaven. 
That should be what we're known for. We're known for the, the good news message. But most people say Christians are known for what they're against. We should be known for the good news message. Wow. So about the Word of God, what do we do? Well, we know it. We should study it, dig it. You know, that's one of the reasons we do Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, CBI, all the good stuff. We need to study the Bible so we can know it. And then we need to live it out. Live it out. In a fallen world, be a light. Remember he said, be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine as lights in this world. That's what we got to be, lights in the world. Are we making a difference? You can't walk the tightrope of the world and be different for Jesus Christ. You can't get close. You can't get close to the world. J. Vernon McGee used to tell the story about the little girl who got in the bed, and, and then she fell out of the bed, and her daddy came in there and said, What happened, baby? She, he said, I, she said, I think I got too close to the edge and fell out. Well, sometimes we try to get too close to the world. We try to see just how close. To the, I've had people ask me, Well, what, what can I do? Like, what's the, what's the worst I can do to get right to the edge? So the truth is, don't get right to the edge. Don't get right to the edge. Second thing, and this is my favorite, praise God, there's a time of reunion coming. Grace and mercy, he's going he's gonna to unite us with our loved ones who have died in Christ. And what a great reunion that will be. May we live our lives based on the Word of God as we look forward to our reunion with Jesus Christ and with our loved ones. We're going to pray, and then we're going to have the Lord's Supper. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word and how perfect it is, and we just thank you for the great truth there. Lord, when we think about this passage and we realize that your Word is always true and always right and always accurate, and so may we base our lives on your Word. May we live that way. Lord, we know that there are things that are right and wrong, and we live our lives based on your Scripture, and we want to stand for you in a fallen world but we want to stand in such a way that we're known for the good news proclaimers the people with the good message the people with the good news message Lord we also realize that one day one day we'll be together with our loved ones who know Christ and we know Christ and one day we'll be together again and we look forward to that Lord we thank you for the memorial that you've given to us and that memorial is uh, the Lord's Supper and so Lord as we partake of that we praise your name And we glorify our Savior, Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray.